As we continue our series in the book, um, focusing on what it means to be the church, which we get our definition of what the church is from Scripture, we will focus on the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And we'll be careful to remember what these things mean for us. And so I invite you today to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus might be a a little bit harder book of the Bible to find because we don't go there as often, it would seem, as other books. Uh, But it's one of the pastoral letters, pastoral epistles. So you'll find it after 1st and 2nd Timothy and then Titus. Um, If you find yourself in Philemon or Hebrews or James or 1st and 2nd Peter, um, then you've gone a little bit too far. It's just this short three-chapter book following 1st and 2nd Timothy. And Titus chapter 3 is kind of one of our transition points for this series where we have spent a couple weeks focusing on the apostles' teaching. What is that and what do we mean by it? And Titus 3 still has some of that, but it also is going to start pointing us in the direction of what should mark Christian fellowship? What makes Christian fellowship different from other gatherings? We'll get into that a little bit more later, but Titus 3, 1 through 11, is the both and of the Apostles' teaching, a summary of the gospel, and also uh, a beautiful and um, succinct urging on what it is to be Christians in fellowship, what is the character of our fellowship. And so as we come together to Titus chapter 3, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to the preaching of God's word, so that God may speak to us through the word. Will you pray with me? God, engage our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us your truth, O God. Speak to us wherever our hearts may find themselves today. God, open our eyes to that which we don't see, or help us to look at that which we would rather not see. Move in your word that we may follow you, Jesus, the living word. So by your Holy Spirit, bless us now as we look to the scriptures as the lamp unto our feet and the light onto our path. Amen. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we all, every single one of us, you, me, we have a tendency to gravitate towards certain scriptures. And we pick up on certain ones and they just strike us with beauty and power. And we have a tendency to then pick those scriptures and to memorize them and live by them. And this is all fine and good. But... There are also those ones, those verses, that we don't like so much. Maybe that we don't understand what to do with. Maybe we just don't agree with it. Or don't like the implications of what it would mean to take it seriously. Well, those, those verses that we like a little bit less, we tend to ignore them, to read them really quickly to get further down the chapter to the part that we like, or maybe we just do our best to pretend that they're not there. We don't have to do that actively. We can rather passively forget things. Or maybe we just wait and hope that they can be explained away. We most often simply decide that they don't apply to us, but they probably apply to someone else. They probably apply to someone doing something we don't like. There's a verse for them, but that verse might not be for us if we're doing what we like. Of all of the noise in our world right now, and and among Christians as well, there are plenty of Bible verses to throw out. There are plenty of things said very quickly. And there are also just sentiments that you won't find in Scripture that are said as if they are Scripture. But one thing that I've noticed, we're not too quick to bring up in conversation or to quote in long posts on social media, are verses like Titus 3.1, where it says to be subject to rulers and authorities. And we bristle at this, maybe just a little bit. Because if we don't like certain rulers or authorities, then we'll just ignore that part about being subject to them, and we'll wait when it's easier, when there's a ruler and authority that we like better, then we'll bring Titus 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 back in. It's not an isolated verse. The Apostle Paul says this even more strongly in Romans 13, but we're not going to go there today. But friends, just remember that this was written at a particular time, 
when the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to Titus, this is a personal letter. We are reading someone's mail when we read this. And it was not a federal offense to do so in the days of Paul and Titus. But the church figured this out. They figured out over centuries how to be subject to rulers and authorities. The church figured this out in times of persecution, and the, time, and the church figured this out in times of flourishing. And often, if you read a lot of Christian history, you'll find out the church figured this out when they were flourishing under persecution. When the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Titus as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit years ago to do so, the emperor was not too mad about Christianity. But the words, those words, be subject to rulers and authorities, they didn't disappear when Nero became emperor and persecution increased. They didn't disappear, nor were they ignored, when Diocletian was emperor. And Diocletian, in many ways, was worse than Nero. The church had to figure out, what does this mean to be subject to rulers and authorities and to seek that which is to do good? And then the tide changed when Constantine became emperor and Christianity was made the state religion of the Roman Empire. And eventually that led to people being persecuted, not for being Christians, but persecuted for not being Christians. And then I wonder if it was easy to say, be subject to rulers and authorities, but then maybe it became harder to be peaceable and gentle, to seek to do good to everyone. All through this, the church has held certain absolutes. Even as we think about what it means in different times, different places, to be subject to rulers and authorities. And the absolutes were pretty simple. Don't pray to anyone but God. Amen, that's simple enough. Don't worship anyone but God. And know that the Lord alone is God. Actual persecution started when Christians were asked to say, Caesar is Lord, and they would not, because Jesus is Lord. Let's not confuse inconvenience with persecution. From the times of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the times of Paul and all kinds of other heroes and characters in between, the church in the first and third and 21st centuries, they held to their absolutes that the Lord alone was God and that they were to do good. Paul, in his writing to Titus and to the church in Rome, holds a certain line in his time. And we could speculate endlessly in debate on what we'd speak on what Paul would say in our specific time. But what's beyond debate, what's beyond writing a modern letter from Paul, is that what he says about ruling authorities is just to get to what he's actually after, and that we can't lose sight of this. Be people who are free to do good, and do good to everyone. In fact, this gospel summary in Titus 3 reminds us that Christ saved you out of his mercy so that you could do good. So, are we to slander and mock and degrade those in authority we don't like? 
are we to say, well, I only worship God, so I can ignore everyone else? Are we to be peaceable and considerate when it suits us, or peaceful and considerate all the time? Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Gentle towards everyone. Even in our own congregation, there's disagreement, squabble. How do we handle this COVID correctly? How are people handling it wrong? Can we point that out to them? And I would just ask, is everyone who disagrees with you stupid? It might be how we feel. Is everyone who sees the world differently than you or chooses to respond differently, are they all faithless fools and that you alone are the one with the truth? Do you think that you have a slightly superior faith perhaps to your neighbors. If you do think that way, if any of us did, we didn't read the scriptures very closely or very well. Be ready to do whatever is good. Slander no one. No one. Be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. And friends, just to be clear, the everyone... Just by the language, the everyone is not everyone in the church. This idea to be gentle towards everyone is all of everyone over the world. There's a lot in this list of what the Apostle Paul is asking us, and that's just in two verses. There is a lot in this list, and it requires a lot of us to live this way faithfully. And it's more than just being nice to people. It's more than biting our tongue. It requires empathy to actually live this way, to be marked as Christ's own by the way we live, by focusing on the apostles' teaching, by incorporating even the verses that eh, would be easier to leave alone. How do we do this well? It's not natural for us. Uh, Brene Brown, a social worker, professor, researcher, storyteller, Brene Brown said this on on empathy. In order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. It doesn't mean everything that everyone does is right. It doesn't mean that we become moral relativists where there is no right or wrong. But it does mean when someone tells you their story, you need to hear them as they tell you. When someone shares what their passion is or what they're afraid of or what they're hopeful for, you receive that as they tell it to you, not the way you want them to experience their life. And if, if this needs a little bit more grounding, I would just ask if you've uh, ever been in a significant relationship or with a spouse If your spouse has ever told you that they're upset about something and you tell them it's really not that big of a deal, I just want to ask, how did that go for you? Ooh. There's fewer people here, so it's like, oh man, I can't look at my spouse right now. Too many people can see me. The transparency makes us uncomfortable. But there's always a couple elbows and, you know, shoulder hits. 
When someone tells you what's going on with them and you say, it's not that big of a deal. Get over it. It doesn't end well. It doesn't demonstrate compassion or love or patience or gentleness. And these are the things that we're called to be. We are to be marked by these things. Our human instinct is that we want to fix someone's problem whenever they share it. But often what we're being asked to do is to listen first. Anyone else a fixer? Someone shares a problem with you, let me fix it for you. We are desperate to fix people's problems for them. But the problem is, is we too often want to jump right to the fixing without any listening. That whole thing about be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, that verse is for someone else. When we're angry, it's okay. Don't be too quick to fix that we short-circuit the listening, that we learn to be peaceful, peaceable, and considerate. Because when we do, when we short-circuit the listening, when we abandon empathy, when we neglect compassion, in those moments, we might be in fellowship with one another, but it is not fellowship that is marked by the apostles' teaching. It is not a way of life that is marked by how we are called to be. In order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. This leads us to minimize or blow out of proportion elements of people's story. And this is everywhere. This is in response to COVID. This is in division in our country over race and politics. And don't forget... We were not born as empathic saints. Verse 3 tells us, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Anyone recently told you, I just feel really passionately about this? Enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. At one time. Meaning, at one time, this was the status quo for us. And it's not supposed to be the status quo for us anymore. Not because Jesus came by with a ruler to smack our wrists whenever we misbehaved, but because he saved us. And also, just the, the at one time. There, there's something lost in translation here with the at one time that, that we just, to be humble and to make sure that we don't think that we've graduated too soon, although maybe 2020 graduates will have great commentary on that later, at one time is meant that it should be mostly in the past. But um, actually a favorite professor of mine that Anna de Kreider and Katie Vandenbosch know well, Dr. John Vanderbrugge, pointed out to me once that stylistically, the Apostle Paul does this often. When he says, at one time, it is implying that it should be past tense, but it's still going to happen from time to time. Have you ever done a great job for a long time and then still messed up? And when you messed up, you messed up big? At one time implies that it might still happen every now and again. It should be behind us, but we are still human. We are still learning. We are still making mistakes. 
and we are still learning to grow from our mistakes. Even the most noble person you know is going to mess it up from time to time. How do we respond when people mess up? Is it with grace and charity? When we lose our nerve, it's pretty easy to see that people find that very intriguing. In moments where our temper maybe gets the best of us, or the words fly a little too freely from our mouth or from our keyboard. When we lose a nerve, there will be someone waiting to celebrate our failure. And hopefully, in the church, we are not those people who are waiting for someone else to mess up because it makes us feel better, but we are the people who are patient when we mess up, who will lead us and guide us back, who will show us what grace looks like in real time, and also who will be just when we make actions that have consequences. It has been said that justice is what love looks like in public. There's a bigger picture here to work towards. The bigger picture of of who we were and who we occasionally mess up and still become, but not who we're meant to be, in, in all of this bigger picture element. There's something that we're working towards, and it's where we started, and it's where we're headed towards. So if, if you just want to make a big circle in your mind, the gospel is where we start, and living to be like Christ is also where we're going to end up. It's where we're always directing towards. And our circles are not going to be neat and perfect. They're going to have squiggly lines and zigzags and back and forth. But if you drew your life in a big circle, not a linear timeline, but if you drew your life timeline in a big circle, and all the zigzag lines and mistakes you made and just dumb stuff that you did, you could also add in who were the people who coached you along that line, who brought you back. And how did they do that? Did they slander you? Or were they peaceable and considerate? Were they gentle towards you? even as they held a firm conviction. The bigger picture, of course, is the gospel. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 7. And even as a preacher, I'm going to offer no commentary on this. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 twice. Receive it with patience and hope. Verses 4 through 7 of Titus chapter 3. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us. The all of us, through the washing of rebirth 
and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, does it get any better than that? That's why Paul says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. This gospel, this gospel statement is a trustworthy saying. And you need to stress these things, these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to what? To doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Do what is good. Don't slander. Don't degrade. Don't celebrate others' failures. Don't mock. Don't wait in the shadows with cynicism like a viper waiting to strike. But do what is good. Be generous about it. Generous with your love. Generous with your patience. Generous with your compassion. Generous with your empathy. And when we don't live that way, it doesn't mean that we are not saved by faith or justified through Jesus. But it does point out the moments when our lines get a little squiggly and we're not living into our salvation. We're not experiencing the fullest of hope that we are pursuing. Verses 9 through 11 are just a reminder to not get caught up in missing the point but to do what is good. Do what God has called us to. And that if we are devoted to the apostles' teaching, if we are people of the book, the written word, so that we can know the living word who is Jesus Christ, then our fellowship, our way of being, our way of life with one another, and our way of life with the world, and our way of life with rulers and authorities will be marked in these ways that make us more like Jesus. It does not abandon conviction. It does not mean the rules have gone out the window. But it is being called to a higher plane and to a higher standard. Not because of what we had done. Not because of what we had deserved, but quite the opposite. Because Christ has called us. Christ has called us to be the people in fellowship that help bring our circles back to the gospel. Today, tomorrow, next week, and forever. Amen. We're going to 